You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Years back, when he was a younger cowboy than he is now, Albert Summers came face-to-face with something that he'd never seen before. And, And that's saying something, because he was born and raised on a ranch in one of the harshest landscapes in the world. It's the coldest place on earth, I think, or one of them. I mean, I remember in 1978, I came back from college, and on New Year's Eve, that new next New Year's Day, it was 60 below zero cows frozen to death like popsicles. He'd seen them die in a lot of strange ways, but not like this. He was moving cattle with a bunch of other cowboys high in the mountains. We were pushing cattle. Well, you can see Pinion Ridge from here, and the ridge you see yeah. to the far is pin, what we call Pinion Ridge. And, and somebody found an injured calf, and so on the way out, we all stopped, and the calf had died. And we found it, and it had these, uh, it had, and there, its injury was right on its weathers. You know what a weather is, that's kind of right between your front shoulders, that yeah. meaty piece between your front shoulders. And so, we all, none of us knew what it was. So there's Albert, sitting up on a horse, looking down at a mysteriously dead calf, totally confused, just wondering, what in the living hell? Well, that confusion about what killed that calf has a lot to do with decisions totally outside Albert's control. Decisions made far, far away by people who'd probably never laid eyes on a dead calf in their life. Decisions that got the whole country asking itself, just how wild do we want our wild places to be exactly? From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West. Exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Albert's family had been raising cattle in this extreme place, the Upper Green River Basin in western Wyoming, for, well, like forever. His grandfather was a teacher that came from Kansas in 1900. His dream was to raise cattle in this gorgeous valley surrounded by wild mountains. But right off the bat, it was clear it wasn't going to be easy to keep cattle alive up here. Only a few years before he arrived, ranchers had endured something called the Great Equalizer Winter. The reason it was called the Great Equalizer Winter is because it didn't matter whether you were a 
small rancher or a large rancher, it killed all of your stock. Albert says that winter was a lot like the famous Charlie Russell painting. A cow, skin and bones, hunched up in a winter storm, wolves circling. It's kind of torture to look at. It's called last of 5,000, meaning the last cow left in the whole herd. Well, literally that happened, and it happened here in 1889, and it killed, literally killed 90-some percent, it was estimated, of the cattle that existed in the county. Imagine a winter killing 90% of your cattle. The trauma of that. You can't feed your family because all your money was sunk into that herd. My husband and I own a bookstore. If 90% of our books were lost in a fire, we'd be out of business. I'd do whatever I had to do to make sure that never happened again. And that's what Albert's grandfather and the other ranchers did. They adapted. After that terrible winter, instead of just relying on Mother Nature to feed the cattle, the ranchers did something completely creative. They grew hay for them to eat in the winter. And in the summer, they drove them up into the mountains to graze there. The Green River Drift, it's called. It's this amazing historic cattle drive. Back last fall, before the pandemic, Albert actually took me on a long drive along its route in his Jeep. It's right along this back road where a bunch of ranches every year move all their cattle up into the high country so that they can feast all summer on the tender green grasses that are growing up there. Like the best grasses anywhere. All that deep cold and altitude makes it extra tasty, extra nutritious. Up ahead, I see it, the Wind River Range, some of the most formidable country in the lower 48. But then, just before the howling winters arrive, all those cattle just drift on home, all by themselves. 58 miles they drift. After that, cattle started living through the brutal winters. The ranchers realized that they needed each other, a community of survivors. They even gave themselves a name, the Green River Cattle Association. But the problem was, when the winter didn't kill their cows, other things did. You know, I'm the son of an old man that was a son of an old man, so my dad was born in 1915. He never really talked a lot about grizzly bears, talked about bears, but wolves, he did talk about wolves. He talked about an incident that his father and the neighbor had told him about where wolves came in and I'm going to guess this was in their in the early 1900s and killed a hundred head of wean calves in in a pen one night, a large large pack, and and probably some of that was uh, stampeded suffocation, you know, from from a stampede of the calves. After predator attacks like that, the ranchers went after them with a vengeance. The association back in the day. They carried bear traps to the mountains. You know those big old huge things you see hanging on walls? The association had bear traps. And uh, if they had problems, they trapped bears. Teamwork. Just like ranchers started the drift to stop the death of cattle in winters, 
So when the predators attacked in the night, the ranchers killed them off or hired someone to do it for them. They trapped, they poisoned, they shot, and it worked. Albert's dad remembers getting out of bed in the night to hear the last wolves howl in the valley. And then, for almost two generations, the trauma of dying cows slowed way down. It felt like the brutality of nature had nearly been tamed. Until, well, here's Albert on his horse, looking down at a dead calf with some weird-looking injuries. The oldest guy riding that day, Sprout Wardell, he looked at it, he said, a bear killed that kid. You know, he was fairly old then, and so he would have been, as a young man, he would have seen that at some time. And so that was the first grizzly kill that we know that we had. That you had seen That we had seen, that I had seen in my lifetime. Wait, what? A grizzly, not a wolf? It it took me a sec to digest this. I guess I just assumed wolves are the mortal enemy of ranchers. Sure, it's true. Nowadays, we all carry bear spray to fend off bears. But in our subconscious, for some reason, we don't think of bears as vicious killers. Goldilocks snuggled into Papa Bear's bed, for God's sake. In the fairy tale, Snow White and Rose Red, one of my favorites when I was a kid, the bear is a protective pet that turns into a prince. One night, there was a knock at the door. And a voice said, Do not be afraid. I shall not hurt you. I only want to warm myself at your fire. It was a bear. Snow White and Rose Red made him welcome. Sure, bears are powerful, monstrous. But mostly, they're kind of cute and cuddly. Albert wasn't sure his father even knew the difference between a grizzly and a black bear. But Albert learned the difference real quick. Grizzlies were usually a lot bigger and a lot more territorial. By 1997, we had lost a number of calves and our calf loss percentage was increasing. Um, By 2011, our calf loss on this allotment had went from 2% in the 90s to to somewhere around 11% in 2011. Um, It got to an all-time high in 2015 of almost 14% calf loss. We have lost almost 1,000 head of cattle on this allotment in 25 years. Confirmed kills to grizzly bears and wolves. With the, with the vast majority of it being grizzly bears. Ranchers had used those giant traps to wipe out the bears from this country. But now, they were back. From the rancher's point of view, generations of hard work down the drain. The bears had been here in small numbers all along. But such small numbers that tourists visiting Yellowstone hardly ever spotted one. Less than a thousand of them left in the lower 48. And those tourists paid big bucks to experience real wilderness. And what they paid for was something truly red in tooth and claw, as the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson put it. It even happened to me when I was a kid. We took a trip to Yellowstone and left disappointed not to see a big carnivore. Maybe this place isn't so wild as it's cracked up to be, our family sort of left thinking. 
So in the mid-70s, the U.S. government put the grizzly bear on the endangered species list as threatened. They, they were listed and they created a recovery plan. Um, a recovery plan that has been violated time and time again by the federal government. We reached the thresholds in the original grizzly bear recovery plan decades ago. And so as soon as we reach a threshold, um, then a new threshold is created. We reached that threshold and another threshold was created. And until, you know, the grizzly bears were delisted and then they were relisted. And this time when predators killed calves, trapping or hunting them was illegal. It felt like the feds had just left the ranchers to the wolves and the grizzlies. For me, one of those disappointed Yellowstone tourists, keeping grizzlies listed is a good thing, right? The bear has only recovered on a tiny percentage of its former range, my shrill inner voice cries. They're stuck on this little Yellowstone island. They need to migrate out, breed with grizzlies in other areas. But Albert's inner voice says something else. And I don't have anything against grizzly bears or wolves, but you have to manage them. If, if they don't manage them, we can't be here. If it wasn't for the compensation program by the state of Wyoming, we wouldn't be running up here. We can't, couldn't afford it. Too many losses. And, uh, and, and people say, well, so what, what, what does it matter? What does it matter whether you're here or not here? The ranches in this valley and in other valleys and across the state, they preserve a lot of wildlife habitat. They preserve the open space we like. They preserve a lot of the qualities and characteristics of this state in the West that we really love. And I get, I frankly get kind of emotional about this. And uh, I don't know, um, I think I love the landscape more than probably anybody out there. And uh, I think we've done a pretty good job. Sitting in Albert's Jeep, I hear what he's saying to me, how much he loves this land, how protective he feels for it. But there's that niggly voice in my head muttering, hmm, are ranchers the best protectors of all this wildlife habitat? I mean, the thing is, some ranchers, maybe not Albert, but some, do let their cattle way overgraze the land. And over the decades, that's led to all kinds of problems. I've reported on a million stories on the bad effects of too many cows on the land, invasive plants spreading everywhere, soil erosion. They eat down sagebrush that hundreds of species rely on, some of them really endangered, like the sage grouse. Water pollution when they graze along streams and lakes. Some part of my mind was thinking, maybe it would be better if this whole valley was managed by the government. Without cows, grizzlies would keep elk populations in control. Aspen groves would flourish. Yeah, okay, I'm one of those who always wants more wildness. But the ranchers, they want, even need, to manage the wild urges of nature so they can make a wage and keep living this life. I visit nature, but Albert, he gets the full immersive experience. I'm jealous of that. So yeah, his emotional feelings for this land, they move me because they remind me of my own. But I didn't say any of this, just puzzled over it. And anyway, Albert had moved on to the next part of his story. 
about how even more grizzlies were moving in, and that meant cowboying had become downright dangerous. One time, Albert was out with another rancher and a wildlife manager, and they came across some dead calves killed by a bear in the bushes along the river. We saw some ravens and some magpies over on another little oxbow of the river. And I pushed into this really thick patch of willows, and there was a grizzly bear, now I'm going to guess 20 yards out. But there was a guy behind me, so I yelled grizzly bear. I go, grizzly bear. And when I yelled bear, that bear stood up and he charged me and my horse. My horse, I didn't have to turn my horse. My horse didn't like the looks of that. Albert raced his horse back the other direction that he'd come, back past the other rancher, who was also yelling at this point. Albert pulled his horse up and turned to look back. The bear had stopped at the edge of the willows. And the game and fish guy had dropped his shotgun and was going for his pepper spray. Um, and that, uh, that rancher said that bear was about 15 feet behind my horse when I came out. And, and I've, I have bumped a lot of grizzly bears a horseback over the years now, and they usually all run 100 miles an hour away from you. But that's why they're dangerous. One, one in 100 or one in 20 times, they're just going to be pissed and come go the right at you. And that's why people get hurt. There was probably a dead calf in there. We didn't go back in there. <laughs> But, um, you know, in defense of food, you know, but they are, they are a, a burly, aggressive animal. And so now Albert was just getting pissed off. Not only was he losing money from all the dead calves, he was afraid of losing his own life. The government started a reimbursement program to pay ranchers for their lost livestock, almost as if they had given up on ranchers ever adjusting to life with predators. Some ranchers even questioned it. Like Malou Anderson, she's not your typical rancher. She thinks ranchers can live with predators and without the handouts. And I'm not totally sure if we should be compensated for some of these practices that we should be doing anyway, these preventative practices. I definitely support the compensation program, and I admire it, and I'm glad it's here. But I do have thoughts about, you know, we should be doing our best to move forward with preventative measures and to be thinking outside the box and not only rely on the compensation program. But most ranchers completely disagree with this take. Albert says he could only continue being a rancher with the compensation program, but still he says it wasn't nearly enough. Only the market value of any cows they could prove were killed by a wolf or a bear. Well, it was extremely frustrating to begin with. You're powerless. So you can't, you can't do anything on your own because you're relying on agencies and rules and regulations to do it for, to do anything for you. And so at first, it was really difficult on us. I mean, it was really hard on us. We were mad. We were angry. Then that bad year hit, 2015. Albert lost 14% of his herd to grizzlies. He was at his wit's end. He was in ranching to feed people, not bears. You know, I decided that what, are, what else can we do? You know, what other things are going on? And so I had that in my head at the same time that Chris Colligan came around knocking on the door. Chris Colligan, 
a bear hugger with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. Not Albert's favorite type of person to find knocking on his door at the end of a long day. He opened the door and, well, you'll just have to stick around to find out what happens next when we return to this episode of The Modern West. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. When we left off, a wildlife conservationist named Chris Colligan had just shown up at Albert's door. Chris stood on the doorstep with a friend of Albert's, Phil, and they wanted to know if they could come in. And I said, sure, and so sat down at the table and Chris introduced himself. Hi, I'm with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. And I go, well, the last time I saw you, you know, heard anything from you guys, you had, uh, you had appealed one of our grazing um, plans. Grazing plan is when a rancher gets permission to let their cattle graze on public lands. You've probably been out on a hike in the National Forest and seen a bunch of cows roaming around. That's because a rancher has a permit from the feds to let them. I used to work on a wilderness trail crew, cutting out big fallen down trees off the trail with one of those unwieldy eight foot long crosscut saws. We couldn't use a chainsaw because they're not allowed in wilderness. So it always kind of struck me as odd that hundreds of cows could stomp around up there. Well, apparently, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition had the same concerns about Albert's cattle. They disputed one of his plans, and that rubbed Albert the wrong way. But Albert being Albert... Albert graciously invited us into his home and visited with with me as kind of a bit naive conservationist coming into the conversation with him, um, bringing up ideas of how, how to reduce conflicts. And, and he listened to me and, and uh, heard, heard us out. That's Chris, remembering back on that first awkward encounter. But he says part of the work that night was just airing those old grievances. And then towards the end of the meeting, as we were departing, he said, um, just a a reminder that uh, our organization had appealed their their grazing EIS, and he has a very long memory. (laughs) Um, So it took took a while to get, you know, through that and, and, um, you know, continued contact and and conversations to begin building that trust that you can have. I knew what a good guy Phil was that was on their board. So I figured things had changed. And I told Chris that and he goes, well, that was us then, that's not us now. We are, you know, we wanna be on the ground finding solutions. And I really respect that, you know, rather than trying to be part of the problem, try to be part of the solution. It was a significant moment for Albert, not so different from the one his grandfather experienced after the great equalizer winter. A moment when you say to yourself, damn it, the way I'm doing things isn't cutting it anymore. He saw it wasn't just the ranchers who were trying to adapt. The conservationists were scrambling too. Yeah, disputing grazing permits was really important work. Public lands belong to us all and someone needs to defend that. But on the other hand... Chris realized that getting on the same page as ranchers, collaborating, negotiating with them, was even more important. That can't have been an easy decision for Chris. But it didn't take long before they started hammering out some concrete plans. 
we want to we have this idea about putting on a seminar bring in some people talk about are there other non-lethal measures that can be utilized to uh to help you and i figured well we you know we've been doing the standard thing forever you know is there anything else we can try so we we had this seminar um and we brought in people like Cat Herbicide, who's a guard dog person. We brought in a gal that had Karelian bear dogs and gave us a presentation. Well, Albert hasn't tried using those to chase off bears yet, but he has tried lots of other stuff that he learned at that seminar in the years since then. Chris at the Greater Yellowstone Coalition helped him get some giant bear boxes. You know those shipping containers that are on ships that are all metal? There was a place that would cut them in half, put doors on the front, and then you had this bear-proof container. That way his range riders, his cowboys who live up in the mountains with the cattle, they can keep their dog food and garbage in a nice safe place where bears can't get in. Albert's family has always hired range riders, but nowadays these guys have a very different job description. Now, one of their main duties is finding dead cows and getting them off the landscape as fast as possible. Dead cows are stinky, and bears have great noses. And well-trained riders are more likely to find dead cows. That's the other big thing that Albert had to learn to embrace. The government has a true partner. He even gets the state wildlife guys to train his riders how to keep their camp clean and how to approach dead calves. Our whole relationship with Game and Fish and the Forest Service has evolved into one where we trust each other. It's really about building relationships, forming trust, finding the solutions that you can, and even when you can't find the silver bullet, at least the relationships and the trust allow you to move through. Just like his grandfather learned, it takes a village to keep cattle alive in this place. But this time, the village isn't just made up of ranchers. They've got allies in environmentalists and government agencies. The accumulation of all these new techniques. Chris, with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, says they're starting to work. And what we are seeing today is is uh, evidence of that success, that there are viable populations of of these species in places that they were eradicated. And, and now I'd, I'd say we've shifted more towards figuring out how, how to live with these species that do create conflicts, and especially in areas where you have willing partners that like, um, there's some great examples of, of success where in the Northern Rockies, uh, conflicts have been reduced by working with producers. And probably the best example of that is up in Montana's Blackfoot Valley, where they showed a decrease in conflicts by with grizzly bears over 96% in, in the last 15 years. By, by doing some of these techniques and, and working together. This is an adapting and changing landscape, and the predators are always changing, and so we must also... Remember Malou Anderson, the rancher who had doubts about the compensation program? That's her. She's a rancher in Tom Minor Basin in Montana. And like Albert, Malou Anderson grew up on the ranch doing things the traditional way. But then she and her brother and his wife decided to try a wacky new philosophy. It's looking to nature and what it does in these types of situations. How do other herd animals react? Who are the good moms in those herds? Is it you know elk or bison or elk versus bison? And then start adapting some of the things that nature does to protect itself. 
Albert said it was necessary to manage nature so people could keep living with it. Malou was telling me ranchers could still manage it, but by learning from nature in collaboration with nature. This idea is spreading among ranchers. These days, Malou and her family teach this philosophy to people adapting to wild animals all over the world. Malou says cattle have good instincts, like elk, like bison, and she's seen how this protects them with her own eyes. You know, I saw a bear walking across my uncle's lower calving pasture last winter, and he had just gotten a, a new bunch of some heifers, some um, Hereford heifers. So those heifers um, had really never been around predators that I'm aware of because they came from a lower area. And um, they bunched together and they they started to run towards the bear, but not in an aggressive way. It was more of a curiosity, young way. And that startled the bear. That energy, he didn't know, he or she didn't know what to do with that energy. And so he ran off. And, and then they kept running after him. And so it actually, that curiosity ended up working really well. I've seen that a lot. Curiosity might kill the cat, but it saves the heifers. But bunching isn't all her family does. They also have a robust range rider program that they share with their neighbors, and they breed special dogs that scare off wolves and bears. She says in her mind, it's actually her job to keep trying these things. And we, I believe, uh, speaking for myself, choose to stay and ranch in these places because of the wildness and because of um, how unique it is. And so I believe uh, that we have a responsibility to be better than what we've been in the past and to learn out-of-the-box approaches and to continue experimenting and exploring. Albert is one of those ranchers that's experimenting. He says he can do that thanks to Wyoming's compensation program. These days, it's more generous than it was before. Now when a rancher can prove they lost a calf or a sheep to a grizzly, the state of Wyoming pays them three and a half times the market value. It's one of the most generous compensation programs in the country. Albert had something to do with that change. These days, he's a state lawmaker, and people listen to him. That's probably one reason he's now getting invited to teach other ranchers what he's learned about coexisting with predators. Today, he's at a fire station in the Ruby Valley in southern Montana. The parking lot is jam-packed with pickup trucks, and the lunch line stretches out the door. People pile up bowls of beef stew and cornbread. Albert stands at the front of the room with two unlikely friends of his, Gary Hayward from the Forest Service and Zach Turnbull with the Wyoming Game and Fish. To these Montanans, it's a weird trio. Zach is a tall, quiet guy who hides behind a bushy beard and a low cap. He tells the audience how he shoes off bad bears, something he calls hazing. He talks over a video of himself scaring off a grizzly from a rancher's grazing allotment. FYI, you're going to hear him shoot a blank at the bear. Human presence and hazing, I talked about it earlier. Sometimes all I do is run the bear off. Um, I just kind of wanted him gone. Get out of here. This seems to be kind of more common, I guess. Um, um, Get out of here. Hey, hey. And now it's, I, just, it's um, I wanted him gone. He didn't kill. There was a dead yearling there. He was on that the bear killed. <coughs> he wasn't hurt. After lunch, Albert and his Wyoming pals sit down, and the Montana Wildlife Agency folks get up on stage. 
This time, there's no rancher with them. No vibe of collaboration. In fact, a chill kind of settles over the room. One rancher in a 10-gallon hat stands up. Yeah, Hillary, a couple of years ago, you made the statement, uh, bears outside the core recovery area would be managed more aggressively. Are we there? Are you working on it? Where are you at with that statement? <laughs> Dave, I said, <laughs> didn't we have a conversation earlier? <laughs> no. Um, um, so in both ecosystems, both ecosystems are similar. This must have felt awful familiar to Albert. His Wyoming forebears had the same relationship with the government. You know, like, yo, what have you done for me lately? Albert tells everybody he doesn't feel like that so much anymore. And that's the message he leaves folks with. It's really important to build relationships and build trust. And that's a two-way street. The agencies have to do it, and we have to do it. And maybe I might need to meet ranchers halfway and extend some trust, too. My family... We try to be locavores. We buy steaks from the likes of Albert. My kids know the name of the rancher who grows the juicy hamburgers they love. I'm happy about that. But maybe a part of me is holding back in that relationship, giving lip service, but not extending a real working hand. Maybe to do that, I need to recognize that a wilderness in this modern age is more like my garden. Messy, overgrown, but fertile. But still, it needs a certain amount of tending, watering, weeding. That's a hard thing for me to say, that a wilderness has trouble tending itself anymore. But by refusing to say it, I leave the gardening to people who might prefer to put in a parking lot. Every evening, as the shadows are getting long, Albert puts on a pair of rubber boots and walks out past the old log house where his father was born and gets in his tractor. At the fence, the calves assemble, watching his every move. In their eyes, a look of trust that he'll take care of them. So you're gonna gonna be the gate opener? I can be. All right. While we feed them, we have to get in and out a million times to open and close the gate. That's because an open gate means they'll just wander out and start drifting up into those wild mountains. Just like wolves and bears, we have goofy ideas about cows, too. How dumb they are, just a hamburger on hooves. In fairy tales like Jack and the Beanstalk, the cow is traded away for three magic beans. I've got an idea. We'll sell the cow. And in the book of Psalms, we're told God owns the beasts of the forest and cattle on a thousand hills. And because God owns them, we own them. There's little personification of cows in Western culture. They're stockpiled, bartered, a sign of wealth. Any intelligence has been bred out of them. That's probably been my own bias. But Albert and Malou would both argue that's not accurate, that the instincts of cattle are still strong. 
instinct to drift to greener pastures, then to drift home, to bunch together against an enemy. Part of what Alberts learned from the arrival of the carnivores is to trust the wild instincts of cattle. Things have changed, and things are going to continue to change. And we just have to try to do the best job we can interfacing those changes and dealing with it and facing them. I, I, ranchers and I, I hate change. You ask my wife. I hate change. But it's inevitable. Yeah. And uh, the sooner you learn that, the sooner you learn how to deal with it. But you know what? Halbert gets it, that admiration for the wild set free. I run onto a grizzly bear and she had three yearling cubs with her. And it was late in the year and they were fat, you know, and as they were moving, their humps were rolling, you know, and they're beautiful animals. You know, they really are beautiful animals. I may not, if it's killing my cattle, I may not want it there. <laughs> I think our association recognizes that bears and wolves are here to stay, but we want to stay. And, uh, and how do we do that? Yeah. Yeah, that's the question for me. The one that really gets at the heart of things. Just how can we create a world in which humanity and the wildest of the wild can cohabitate? Well, there's one thing I'm pretty sure about. Albert, Chris, Malou, all of them will be spending the rest of their days trying to figure that out. to get your thoughts on this question of how wild do we want our wild places to be. Join us for a lively conversation on social media. You can find us at Modern West Pod. Next time on the Modern West, we'll take a long walk along the brand new Great Plains through trail. If that sounds like a cinch, well... I got my ass kicked, to be honest. <laughs> really? Yes. I thought, I thought, okay, 15 miles a day on average, I can do that. It's going to be flat. I'm over 30 now, but it's going to be flat. You know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But it was not flat. I'm Melody Edwards. The reporting for this episode was possible thanks in part to support from the Patty Laser Greater Yellowstone Creative Writing and Journalism Fellowship through the Wyoming Arts Council. The show's story editor is Aaron Jones. Our digital producer is Anna Rader. And our executive producer is Micah Schweitzer. The theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod. <laughs>